Hi, DTX Podcast listeners. I'm Dan Kendall, the founder of Mission Based Media and producer of the Digital Health Today channel of podcasts. If you're listening to this, you're probably already familiar with the style and content of the DTX Podcast, which is hosted by Eugene Borohovich. We love bringing you conversations with people who are creating the products and services that support the health of people and populations. We've got something really special for you today. Instead of a regular episode, we're giving you a taste of the brand new Emerging MedTech Today podcast. This is another show we produce with host Henry Peck and the team at LSI, also known as Life Science Intelligence. We think you'll love it. Don't worry, we'll be back with our DTX episodes next week. But for today, enjoy this special treat. If you enjoy what you hear, please be sure to check out Emerging MedTech Today and hit that follow button. You can find the link in the show notes or by searching for Emerging MedTech Today on Health Podcast Network or your favorite podcast player. Thanks for being a part of a wonderful community of health innovators and changemakers. We always strive to bring you content we believe you'll enjoy, both from our Digital Health Today channel of shows and others that align with our values and interests. Without further ado, here's episode one of the Emerging MedTech Today podcast. Enjoy. Hey everyone, it's Henry. Welcome to Emerging MedTech Today by LSI. Today, I'm joined by Deanna and Alessio of Panakis Partners, and we touch on everything from the learnings from their first 75 million euro fund that they're carrying into fund two, the current market conditions and challenges faced by MedTech and health tech companies, and how opportunities in MedTech and health tech are juxtaposed in the US and across Europe. Enjoy. Deanna, Alessio, thank you so much for joining me. We'd love to have you introduce yourselves to the audience and give us a little bit of an intro on Panakis Partners, your first fund, and the learnings from that first fund that you're carrying into the second fund. Hi, Henry. Hi, everyone. Diana Saraceni here. Together with Alessio, we co-founded Panakis, managing directors of the firm. And I have 23 years of venture capital experience. I also co-founded another venture capital firm quite some time ago uh, called 360 Capital. Um, and I've been active in the field for of MedTech specifically for the latest 10 years or so. Thanks, Henry. Hi, everyone. I'm Alessio Beverina. Uh, I'm an engineer in background. I co-founded, as Diana said, uh, Panakes back in 2015. Prior to that, I was a research engineer in a lab and then worked for 10 years at Sofinova Partners out of Paris and uh, working hard in order to make Panakes funds, number one and number two, successful in the future. The first fund were raised uh, in, a, in a different environment back in 2015. It took us a long time to raise because it was first time team, first time fund, uh, but we were successful in, in raising 75 million euro. It was a fund dedicated only to MedTech that was invested in the last five years in 12 companies. Certainly, we have done lots of investment in different subsectors of the medtech environment, from surgical equipment to oncology to diagnostics, etc. But what we learned was pretty clear. First of all, probably there are subsectors in the medtech that are not as sexy as we thought at the beginning. In particular, surgical tool, other than robotics. Uh, diagnostic. So we may consider that in the future, and I hope that Diana will be happy to explain uh, what is the strategy of the second fund, we will not make tons of investment in that particular sector. Second key learnings was the fact that it takes a long time to develop a company, in particular in medtech, 
which means also lots of money compared to what we previously thought uh, was needed to get to the exit point. Third point, key learnings, is that we understood, because time has passed, that the big corporates, the strategics that are the target for acquisition of our portfolio companies, are requesting more and more things, in particular, a commercial traction at the beginning. Finally, I believe that uh, also uh, we had several companies with partnership with corporates, meaning a distribution agreement, and this has to be fought widely, highly in the future, because not necessarily a partnership with a strategic makes an exit uh, successful at the end of the day, because corporates are not easy to work with small startup, even if there is a contract in place. I don't know if Diana want to add anything on the key learnings. Well, on the exciting part, maybe we had key learnings on things that uh, produced different outcomes in the bad, but also in the good. And on the good side, we learned that as some, uh, for example, for some asset, the excitement generated in the segment can create uh, big opportunities for the company to raise money, increase evaluation and have huge opportunities. We also learned that uh, when you have comparables in the IPO market that produce great market capitalization, even in the early days without revenues, then that's where you can trigger exit pre-revenues, which is great. You don't have to go through the effort of raising the money and produce commercialization and a few other exciting stories that we have that we're also learning for the better than what we have planned. Well, congratulations on deploying the first fund and on raising fund two. You talk about some of those learnings that you're carrying through working with the strategics and thinking about comparables in the public markets and how that can feed into the valuations and momentum for early stage companies. I'm curious now with fund two, what's the new strategy? What are you taking from that first fund into fund two? And particularly, what are you most interested in looking at in this new fund? Well, yes, let's start with the uh, with the basics of a new fund. It's kind of a very exciting time here at Panacas with 175 million new fund to uh, deploy that had just a final closing, went oversubscribed. We have lots of uh, strategics as investors in our fund. There's a kind of an overlap with the first fund in the sense that uh, most of it will be focused on medtech mostly pan-European companies, but also and we have some allocation for outside of Europe. And I mean, early to uh, late, we're open to tickets in the range of anything between minimum of two, three million up to 10, given the higher capacity of this fund. With this fund, we also added biotech to it. And I mean, it will be also interesting to look at opportunities where there is product combination, where medtech and biotech both add some components. And as Alessia said, as kind of learnings from the first fund, we are going to be very focused on devices when they bring a sort of therapeutic benefit to the patient. And this also will kind of in overlap with the, with the biotech strategy, which is about treating patients, curing patients, just with two different angles. And when you talk about the investing geographies that you're looking at, you talk about mainly focusing in Europe or having an allocation for outside of Europe. Let's focus on Europe first. And obviously, one of the big seminal events in European medtech has been the, the MDD-MDR shift. And that's affected how medtech companies in Europe are going to 
be capitalized, develop their technologies and commercialize from the earliest stages all the way through growth. And I'm curious how you're looking at the change in that landscape and how it may be affecting the behavior of companies in your portfolio, how you're thinking about investments and how you're thinking about capitalizing companies in the early stages. Let's start saying that if you look back at five, 10 years ago, all American companies were coming to Europe in order to get the CMARC first, in order to demonstrate the technology and usability from the patient perspective. Then they were going to the United States doing the clinical trial to get the FDA. As of today, in particular on the more invasive kind of technology, cardiovascular, neurology, etc., companies are not going anymore to Europe first. It will be US first because of the difficulties the MDR has caused to all the environment. Even the companies in Europe are going FDA first? Even companies in Europe are going US first, yes. Because in particular, if you are targeting an invasive kind of solution, right, cardiovascular, neurology, et cetera, et cetera. So the point is that, you know, if before, from a, an investment perspective, what has been changed is that essentially the first check that we are putting inside the company that were normally get to the C mark are now much larger because you want to demonstrate through the FDA. So clinical trying the FDA, as we know, is much more expensive than doing that in Europe. So the overall effect that you invest more money at the beginning at a higher risk in order to get to the milestone, which is the clinical validation and then the FDA. Certainly, you know, this is uh, very sad to say for the European patients, but also for European company because they need from day one structure a strategy towards the United States and towards the FDA. And in particular, again, from an investment perspective, more money in at the beginning at higher risk compared to what was the case before. Little addition point to the MDR or the way the notified body are working in Europe in comparison to what the FDA does in the United States. Notified body Europe are not working in, in a propositive way towards the startups and the corporates. So you cannot have an interaction with them. These days, even more in the last years, FDA has been open to a dialogue with the startups. And this makes it special for a company. You, know, you don't know what is the right strategy going for a clinical trial, what is the number of patients, what, what is the, the course that you need to do. By discussing with the FDA in a proactive way through calls before the submission makes things extremely easy. In Europe, everything is out of nowhere. So you don't know what this notified body is going to ask till you ask. Interesting. And when we talk about FDA, CE mark, I think we have a tendency to kind of look at those two things as two sides of the same coin. But as we know, for European investors like yourselves, Europe is not as homogenous maybe on the outside as the United States seems, right? There could be a tremendous difference between being an early stage company in Germany and France versus New York and New Jersey. And so Deanna, I'm curious, do you see differences in the outlook and strategy for early stage companies when you look at two major geographies like Germany and France in Europe, or is it fairly homogenous? 
Now, actually, there are a big difference around Europe. I would say there are big difference around the U.S. too, but let's stick to Europe as your was your main question. There are big difference around Europe and mostly, I mean, I can see at least two reasons and they're both related to the kind of uh, ecosystem that is developed in a country or another. First of all, the financing, the liquidity available for early stage medtech companies is very different from a country to another around Europe. The second being the cost, the uh, level of cost you have to undertake for HR is very different. It can be twice as much uh, depending on the geography. So for whatever is um, for engineers, for clinical directors, resources, and also to run clinical studies can be very different level of cost. So at least these two will generate dramatic difference around Europe. But I would say the U.S. is not very different, to go back to my point. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly. You see definitely differences for cost of talent between, say, the coastal cities and the middle of the country. And that's definitely been something that uh, I think has been challenged with the post-COVID remote work as people start to disperse. And obviously, maybe a little easier to do at a digital health company than something with a hardware component in more of a traditional med tech venture. Alessio, focusing on digital health and health tech, is that same homogeneity present in Europe with digital health companies the way it is with med tech companies? Or are there special or different considerations for digital health in Europe across different geographies? I believe there is a differences among the different European countries on how the, the digital therapeutics or digital companies are in the healthcare are progressing. So first of all, we need to separate between the different kinds of subsector in the digital healthcare. Either you are in the software for a clinician or put in the relationship with the doctors and the patient, et cetera, et cetera, or you have a fantastic software of AI for clinical trial, etc., or you have a digital therapeutic. So all of these make things completely different. So I do believe that in Europe, in countries like France and Germany, startups will have a huge advantage. Why so? Because in particular in Germany, they have done uh, something very smart and unique, which is an early reimbursement of digital therapeutics product done essentially by startups without the need of clinical proof of their therapy, which means that the company can start selling and get reimbursed by by the healthcare system or insurance early on. While doing so, they can start doing the demonstration phase. So if I go back to the key learning things that we have been talking about at the beginning, we would look at over 600 opportunities between 2016 and 2021 in Europe, in digital therapy. There was very little with any proof, any reimbursement, any execution on the commercial traction. From 2021, 2023, now we see lots of opportunity that has gone through the DIGA, the German uh, way of doing reimbursement, that has allowed them to get early proof of their clinical interest for the patient at the end of the day and getting early revenue. This makes things much interesting. Then you can have the clinical proven product and moving to the other European country or the United States. In France, they have done another interesting thing as well, absolutely unique as well, which is related to the digital monitoring solution, 
which are early days reimbursed as well, like in Germany, but not for therapy, it's for monitoring. So it's a different piece and can make company making early revenue, early interest from the doctors and from the whole ecosystem. And then once demonstrated on a smaller scale and in a country like France, go to the bigger market like the United States. Certainly, the fact that Europe is so different country by country in terms of how the doctor is paid, how the relationship with the doctor and the patient is done, how the reimbursement is done, make Europe a little bit more complex than the United States. And if you look, all the major successful digital company in the healthcare are American one working in the American sector. Then there are other sectors where Europe is pretty smart in the digital healthcare, like AI for the clinical trial that I've been mentioning before. I think that there are lots of company based on the mathematical knowledge, which is pretty strong in Europe, that are able to build up fantastic algorithm in order to identify fantastic molecules in the discovery phase that can be working with the interesting pharma globally, not only the European one, but also in the States. Deanna, we talked about medtech across different European geographies, but how do you think about medtech in the US versus the EU, the way that Alessio was explaining some of the success profiles and differences between digital health companies in the US and the EU? Well, I would say that the picture is kind of similar in also given what we just discussed about the new MDR affecting the complexity of uh, clinical trials and regulatory paths. And in producing as a result, what happens is that many companies do run a joint regulatory path combining, trying to combine FDA requirements and, and CE marking, especially class three devices. I think it, the situation also in terms of um, capital availability for companies is quite similar, uh, regularly wise we just discussed. And I would say that also um, valuation wise at the moment, there are some similarities. There used to be a time where European companies were much cheaper now I have to say that we can see valuation have level up with the U.S. companies. I mean, good companies, when they have strong products that, for example, produce a therapeutic benefit, they don't have issues being European or U.S. company to increase their valuation over time, producing clinical results, for example. So that is really happening on both sides of the ocean. So I would say that the sector is quite homogeneous. I don't see big difference at the moment. What drove that leveling of valuations across both sides of the ocean, as you say? It's certainly what happened after uh, 2021, uh, after the sort of uh, the hype time for the sector affected most of U.S. company valuations. So investors there are just prepared to reduce um, significantly their any kind of request in, in follow-up rounds, as was a result of the public markets, of course, and that resulted in leveling up with the European companies, I believe. So the U.S. valuations come down post that hype cycle, bringing them more in parity with what had been happening in Europe. In a stronger way, yes, more than what happened to the European companies. Henry, if I may... 
Probably, you know, uh, I would like to say that in Europe, we didn't see much of, of a huge change in valuation, in particular on the seed on the Series A. And even on, on the Series B, probably because it, we were always reasonable, we didn't see much of that. What Diana mentioned about the craziness sometimes of American company uh, in terms of valuation, it's real, right? Because there is probably lots of money available that there are targeting the super high company that cannot make it afterwards. So if the company cannot make it, you know, and the valuation is still high, you know, you get screwed at the end of the day. But in Europe, we didn't see yet. Probably we will have a six months, uh, one year delay as usual. The roller coaster in Europe is smaller than the American roller coaster. Everything in America when it comes to roller coasters is going to be bigger. The theme parks, the food at the concession stand, it's all going to be bigger. And the valuations seem to be no exception there. I'm curious, you talk about this big hype cycle that happened in 2021 and this kind of reckoning for companies that had gotten these large valuations. And talk to me a little bit about the investors that were a part of those companies and are now looking at those follow-on rounds that you mentioned for companies that raised in those bigger hype cycles. What are you hearing from investment partners, syndicate partners in those spaces who participated in company rounds at valuations like that on the other side of the ocean? And how is that maybe affecting the thinking going forward for American, European, and transatlantic investing at large? The smart one who have kept resources, financial resources aside, they are not going to be too affected, right? I mean, they can afford to go through down rounds and just follow up prorata so that they basically are not affected as a result. That's a smart way to do. You have to be in this business and understand that this is mandatory to keep reserves and uh, to offset any of these cycles. So when there are smart investors in company, nothing really happened. They just resize expectation to go after lower valuation and that's it. The problem is more when, I mean, there are private investors, some of private investors, not to say that they're not smart, thanks God, no, but just to say that some inexperienced private investors sometimes do the mistake to say, well, that's a one-time investment that I'm not going to follow up and then they are affected by everything that happens afterward. By adding a little comment, I do believe, like Diana say, that the smart investor, we put reserve and uh, suggesting their entrepreneur, the CEO of their company, to start the fundraising early on. Or so it takes longer time. Even if you look at the liquidity out there, the dry powder, as we say in our business, is still huge available for the company. Investors are becoming cautious and, and probably trying to, to leverage the, their power with the money and decreasing the valuation over time. So this suggestion of smart VC are giving the reserve and go fundraising, even if you have 80 million in the bank, because this is, you know, you take longer time in order to create interest from the actual investor. So there's money available, but companies need to be smarter in when they start their fundraising and how they run their process with a longer time horizon in mind to plan for what has been a correction in the market condition and what has ultimately affected investor perception of their company and investor behavior when looking at their overall fund and amount of capital. Absolutely. Great. 
We talked about health tech and med tech investing in Europe and the US. And I'm curious within that same fund, how you're thinking about those two segments similarly, differently, and how you're managing deal flow, investment propositions, and opportunities in those different spaces together. So Alessio, starting with you, talk to me about health tech and digital health right now in Europe, in the US, and the spaces or opportunities, clinical needs, the places where you're seeing high opportunity for digital health and health tech to make an impact where you're looking at fund two as a way to participate and drive that impact. So first of all, let me say that uh, since we are investing in the fund, we need to talk the same language inside the partners in the firm. So very often we talk about uh, clinical evidence or demonstration. We talk about regulatory approval. We're talking about IP. In the digital healthcare space, often there is no such things. So where we are trying to focus on ourselves is more related to the company that's very similar to the biotech and the medtech investment that we are normally used to do. So the company that have a very interesting solution, even if it's software instead of a piece of hardware, it's okay. That solves a real medical need that is uh, unsolved as of today. Second, they need to have some initial proof of uh, demonstration on the clinical side. And third, they need to have an ambition to become a large company with a large ambition targeting all the market. So if you're talking about a patient, doctor, software, I don't think we are going to make this kind of investment. It's a kind of ERP in the software business. If you're talking about uh, either kind of smart solution to get the data out of the iPhone through a ring or wristband, I don't think we are going to make it. But where the company is targeting something very similar to what we are doing elsewhere, I think it's going to be our interest. And as I said before, you know, in particular in Germany, there are lots of companies that have been applying to DIGA and they've been able today, not yesterday, but today, have been able to demonstrate that there is a clinical interest for such a solution. Moreover, the digital piece could be added to the pharma products. So if you are using the digital piece, an app, a software, call it as you want, to attach to a drug that can deliver much more interesting data for the patient and then for the pharma, I think we are getting to something real. But again, it's a question of ambition. It's a question of target. It's a question of a met clinical need again and again and again. So this is where we are going to put our effort. I hope we will be able to make one investment. We have not done anything in, in, with the first fund, but I'm sure that there will be something of, of strong interest. On top of that, as said before, artificial intelligence, different kind of algorithm, machine learning, etc., dedicated to the discovery phase in drug is something of interest. Even if I have to say that it's very complicated to identify the good ones, because it's very rare that somebody has everything already demonstrated. So in this case, it's very useful to have a team inside Panakes with the mixed knowledge on the biotech side, you know, to understand what are the drugs and how the drugs behave, what are the mechanism of action, how they can interfere. 
And on the other side, people in the medtech like myself, Indiana, that are able to understand what are the pathology that can be useful for such a technology. Interesting. You mentioned AI-driven drug discovery as one of those areas for high opportunity. And I think we've seen a lot of excitement and a lot of noise in the AI-driven everything in healthcare, whether that's in discovery, diagnosis, treatment, clinical workflows, patient experience. There seem to be more and more opportunities where AI is showing potential to make an impact in healthcare. With this new fund, as you're thinking about digital health and health tech and that overlap with AI, how are you making sense of everything that's happening in the AI world as a way to inform your investment theses, evaluate companies, and just make sense of that landscape? First of all, I think that there's been four or five years that people have been starting talking about AI in healthcare, which is very different from the chat GPT kind of uh, hype uh, of these days. So for what concern the first target in AI, it's for imaging, diagnosis, and monitoring. And I think here there is clear need and the clear technical solution to solve this kind of problem, right? Doctors can be replaced by a software because you see more picture of a cancer than a doctor's. Easy, easy train. But on that particular case, I think that there will be a business model issue one day in the future because, you know, there are hundreds of companies developing AI for imaging, for example. But, you know, how they get to all the doctors around the world unless they are in a machine that does the X-ray or the echo or, or et cetera, et cetera, CT scan. So I think there is a certainly need, certain working paradigm, but there will be a very difficult business model. On the AI for the discovery, I think there are many companies that are working, even in Europe, on the development of particular AI and algorithm to make an early discovery because, you know, it's much faster to look at the data smarter and to take a decision out of it. Certainly, we need to see a proof. Today, we are not at that stage. So there are a lot of startups, companies working with big pharma companies receiving tons of money also from VC, but also from the corporate as a working money in order to, to demonstrate that. I think that in the next five to 10 years, we will have probably the first drugs that have been discovered by AI. And we hope that the one will be one of our company portfolio. <laughs> and as I said before, you know, sometimes it's tricky to identify the right company because you need to have on one side, the biology knowledge, and the other side, you need to have the mathematical uh, knowledge. And on top of that, there is a business model. Are you wanting to go as a service company or are you want to become yourself a biotech company developing your own drug because probably the value out of it is much larger. So there are a lot of moving pieces today on this particular sector of AI. But you know, forget about the chat GPT. I don't think that chat GPT is for the time being, for what we have seen today, at least in Europe, unless you're talking about their relationship with the patient or trying to have a, a direct discussion with the chat GPT in order to know if you are sick or not. I don't think we are here, there yet. On the other side, yes, there are absolutely many companies that are developing. I'm sure that many of them will be successful in the future. Makes sense. And 
Deanna, I'm curious on your side, you know, as you juxtapose again, what's happening in health tech and digital health with med tech and try and share that common language amongst the investors internally, what's exciting you in med tech right now? What spaces, technologies are you looking closely at with this new fund and thinking are areas that are ripe for innovation? Well, we keep a focus on a couple of areas that were uh, successful with the previous fund and keep being very interesting. I mean, one of which is uh, anything in cardiovascular, of course, is cardiovascular is a very interesting segment because their market size, unfortunately for patients, but market size is quite big almost any time. And also because uh, there are a certain number of acquisitions that are happening just pre-revenues, and that's always exciting for investors who don't have to finance the commercial stage of their companies. Another sector we were already exposed with the first fund and keep searching for new investment is anything that's oncology and that goes through devices, which can be either drug delivery or kind of more local approaches to uh, tumor treatment. This is something that we are also very interested in. Anything that's in the diagnostic space for those pathologies is always uh, very interesting where you can improve uh, diagnosis by a cost factor or efficacy, of course. And maybe one space that is was already, again, addressed with the first fund, but it's becoming uh, hotter and hotter is uh, anything in Neurotech. And that is also including a certain number of segments. You have Neurosteam that is part of it. And that's not only for pain treatment, but also for anything that's, for example, again, companies like one now portfolio of the first fund that's... Uh, more neuromodulation than neurosteam that's using ultrasound a neuromodulation to open the blood-brain barrier. That is a platform technology, very interesting to um, increase, enhance drug delivery into the brain. Uh, in innovation around the brain, most of the time is interesting, I have to say. And then obviously, again, in, in diagnostic, anything that's diagnostic around neurology or psychiatric most of the time is introducing some concept and some biomarkers that are badly needed in pathologies, which are otherwise just measured with some kind of qualitative clinical symptoms. If I may add, Ari, my beloved robotic surgical equipment piece, where Europe has demonstrated over the last five years to have been capable of creating interesting company, uh, CMR, Robocat, Precise, Ganymed, Distal Motion, uh, all company that are targeting different kinds of subsector in the surgical robotic environment, you know, not necessarily laparoscopic, but, you know, they can go for brain, they can go for cardiovascular, ophthalmology, microsurgery in the case of our portfolio company, MMI, etc. So there is the capacity in Europe to create a good leader in this particular sector. Also because, as Diana said at the beginning, the overall cost of developing it, it's lower. You need a lot of resources in terms of human being because you need to develop the software. You need to develop the hardware that are extremely complex to do it. And then you need to do the clinical and the regulator, et cetera, et cetera. So Europe has a clear edge on top of it. And I hope that any, some of these companies that I mentioned before will be successful in the future as well. Deanna, you mentioned the neurology space and neurotech getting hotter and hotter in your own words there. And I'm curious, 
when I've spoken to neurology KOLs and companies in that space, I've heard from one, a great quote that I like to use. And they said that what happened in oncology 10 years ago with respect to diagnostics, biomarkers, personalized treatment, precision medicine is going to happen in neurology in the next 20 years. And I'm very curious, are you seeing that? Is that something you buy into? Are there similarities in that shift? Totally. Just to mention one of the biggest disease, if not the biggest disease by number of patients, unfortunately, which is Alzheimer. What is clear is that any drug being approved at the moment on the market, there were two of them approved by FDA in the last 18 months. Basically what they do for the patient is slow down the progression of the disease. Now, if you consider that slowing down the progression of the disease is only relevant if you can catch the disease early on in the process, then you see immediately the similarity with oncology. Most of the major improvement in oncology were about early diagnosis and prevention and be able to have treatment and surgery and obviously also a drug treatment on patients early on in the process. And this is what's happening in neurology. And there will be uh, more and more need of those biomarkers. Actually, we have uh, invested in one, which is a very, very promising company uh, developing a biomarker for early detection of Alzheimer. just to stick to the thesis. <laughs> We're extremely excited to have both of you join us at LSI Europe in September in Barcelona, Spain. And we're going to have both of you on panels speaking at this event. I'm curious, by September, in just a few months, what will we be discussing then? What's going to be really important for our global community of innovators, investors, and strategics to be thinking about, to be discussing and analyzing, and hopefully leave with new insights and learnings on to better grow their businesses and make an impact on healthcare globally? Well, I want to be optimistic and uh, say that we're going to discuss about the full market recovery <laughs> in a few months. I hope. I'm just talking about public markets, of course, because I mean, I, there's no much recovery in private markets, but public market would be good to see um, that we're back to what we have seen in 2020, 2021, to some extent also beginning of 2022. And that would uh, be great for the sector to be able to have early stage IPOs and alike and give the opportunity to many companies to raise the capital they need to further develop. Let's hope. 100% in agreement with Diana, as usual. I hope that, you know, after these 12, 18 months of pause, because the market was down, there was a lot of stress or impatience, et cetera, et cetera, the, the market will recover. And we can see already these days there are a lot of companies that are able to raise funds, reasonable funds. So I hope that uh, in, in September, the bad uh, environment is passed away and we will be able to restart doing business as well. And I hope that the exits, either on the public market or in an M&A, we restart as soon as possible. Diana, Alessio, thank you so much. Thank you, Henry. Thank you, Henry. Pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Emerging MedTech Today by LSI. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified when there's a new episode. For more about LSI and the Emerging MedTech Today podcast, and to continue exploring our suite of videos, interviews, and other resources, visit emergingmedtechtoday.com and find the link in the show notes. 